Hi team, welcome back to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. In this episode, I chatted with Dr. Dan Plews. Dan Plews is a researcher who did a lot of early research on heart rate variability. He's also an educator, nutrition and performance coach for endurance athletes. And he's not just an egghead, he's also someone who walks the talk and is the current world champion and world record holder for his class in the Ironman World Championships, as well as setting a course record for the Topor Ironman in New Zealand. So he's a weapon athlete and also someone who knows what he's talking about. Due to his research in heart rate variability, we've been able to get a special discount for listeners of, to, of the Carb Appropriate podcast at the very best heart rate variability app, HRV for training. And listeners of the podcast can get 10% off HRV for Training Pro, which is a specialized app that links with the HRV for Training app that helps you to monitor the HRV of your athletes. And listeners of the podcast can go to hrv4t.com. And if you sign up for the Pro membership, you'll get 10% off using the code CLIFF. So that's the code CLIFF, and that will be also in our show notes, so check it out. Welcome to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. This song don't give a damn. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant. If you don't try and buy it, or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. I ain't mad at evolution. Dan, my man, welcoming us with a bell. It's nice. Yeah, sorry. I'm I'm just gonna turn off my um just turn off this. So it don't we don't get the annoying bells. Who needs that? There you go. Sweet, good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Last uh, last time we spoke, I think it was the you were either the first or second person I had on the podcast. Um uh, pretty sporadic through last year, but being very consistent now. And uh your podcast was easily one of the most popular. No, oh, and- wow. Yeah, and I, I think people are really interested in the, the the various things that you do, and particularly last time we talked a lot about you know mixed fueling and and how that's um, tailored towards your endurance activities and things. Um, but since then, you've been up to a bunch of things. So what have you been up to since we last spoke? When did we last speak? That's the first question. <laughs> you had uh, just done Topor, and I think you were gearing up to go off to Kona. Yeah, okay, okay. So um, Taupo was done and dusted. And then last year, 2018, was um, the biggest thing, I guess, last year was I had the arrival of a little girl. Um, but um, she was the biggest thing, that she was the biggest part of my life last year was seeing her grow up. But I guess on the professional side, um, I went to the Ironman World Championships in Kona, um, had a big bit of prep going into that, and I... Yeah, had a pretty good race there, won the um, age group competition overall, broke the age group course record um, by more than 10 minutes. 
So yeah, that was kind of my 2018 summed up. A um, pretty big year in terms of triathlon. And since then, um, taking training has gone. Not doing so much training now. I decided not to race in 2019. I'm um, just taking a bit of a hiatus and um, concentrating on new business and work really. So doing a few things there. So that Kona, I mean Topol as well, but that Kona race for you was. I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but from the outside looking in, it looked like it was massive. And I know that a lot of people knew about you beforehand, but now when I talk to endurance coaches, endurance athletes, and you mention Dan Plews, we're like, oh, you know, that they know immediately. So, I mean, you've become a bit of a rock star in the space. Yeah. How, how has that changed things for you? Yeah, it's it's funny, like, because, um, you know, I, f I feel I've done a reasonable amount of stuff in the, at least the sports science and the coaching world, you know, I've, few publications and coached a few top athletes well been to olympics but you know it was kind of that <laughs> that it was that my own performance that put me on the map a little bit um so yeah and it's it's been really good just from trying to make the most out of it, it really and i think i've been beating beating the same drum for a while like in terms of low carb performance in terms of hrv training monitoring whatever it might be but like it's it's kind of it's given me a bit more of a platform to speak from which has been which has been quite quite nice. Yeah, I mean, it was probably, I mean, I don't know if you agree, but it was probably the the way in which you did it. I mean, the the amount by which you smashed that record and also, I guess, culminating in the, the growth of low carb and, and keto and things like that now, you know, being seen as an LCHF athlete and then going out and smashing a record like that um do you, do you think that has a role to play in and how much people have picked up on this yeah i mean definitely i mean it's just it just um it kind of gives support especially to the naysayers who think it can't be done like you know people just don't understand a lot of the time and it still baffles me to this even now when i talk to people about it and they go oh you know they say, oh, you need carbohydrates to perform and like you're yeah okay but you know you're thinking of it, are people thinking of it in the wrong way and and um, and I think that was finally the time where people actually, you know, saw that I could, you know, you can, you can have the best of both worlds. You can have what, I mean, what I like to think of, of what my, the new company Endure IQ, what we like to say is performance, health and, and enjoyment. Um, you know, I think you can have all three and people think, you know, people think you can't, you know, it's, you, you, you have to, you have to, um, if you're performing on one side, you have to take take your health off on the other side, and I don't think that's really the case. So, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think that was that was what was really pushed forward. So that's good. So, what do you say to the naysayers? Because there's going to be people people who take a sort of either a you know contrary approach or a devil's advocate approach, where they say, well, you know, you did great in this race and the you know topol preceding it, but either maybe it was in spite of your diet or perhaps you would have done better eating more carbohydrate. What do you say to that sort of um, position? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm under no illusion that I'm not going to sit here and say that diet was 100% the whole thing. Of course, it was a mag it was a contribution of training, training and diet and the whole thing pulled together. But I think what I did better than anyone else is I, is I merged them together, whereas most people can't do that because they don't really have the understanding to be able to merge both training and and a diet that is lower in carb but i think like on that on that side i've been doing triathlon since i was nine years old and i've i've never really progressed in the way i i have and 
I've always known training. I've always been a physiologist. And I would say the main change in what I've done since 2012, where my kind of steady progression to, to Kona in 2018, what is to change my diet. And I've not just changed my diet, I've refined and progressed my diet in a, in such a, in such a way that is optimal for training under um, for long distance triathlon. So when you say you melded the training and the nutrition and maybe a lot of people don't do that so well, what does that involve? How do you meld sort of lower carb or carb appropriate type nutrition well, what, with your training? One, one major thing that I do is I've never restricted protein. I think that's a massive yeah. mistake. Anyone going into the, um, into this space of low carbohydrate diets, especially when they're athletes, they, 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 they read up on the studies and most of the studies are done in epileptic, epilepsy. So and all the protein requirements are based on treating epilepsy and people go around trying to reduce carbohydrate, trying to think of this gluconeo, trying to not have too much gluconeogenesis. And that I think is the biggest mistake most people make. Um, I mean, gluco, gluconeogenesis, people don't realize that it's not a supply demand thing. It's not like you don't, you don't have more and more, you don't eat more and more protein and you have more and more gluconeogenesis. Your body will, will, will go into homeostasis and it will set a point where it thinks is right for your amount of pro, amount of gluconeogenesis, gluconeogenesis has taken place. So that's one thing. Um, I also kind of, I started off quite low in the carb and I gradually brought it up to a level that I felt was good for me. And that was around 120 to 100, yeah, around 120 grams per day. So you're not talking ketogenic, you're talking more low carbohydrate and, and, um, and the term ketogenic, I think is just a misunderstood term because mm. ketogenic, ketogenesis is not necessarily a diet. It's an actual, it's a physiological state, right? It's not a diet per se. So even, even it, as athletes, you can be in ketosis by exercising, like exercise-induced ketosis and still be just in a lower carb state. So you kind of get the benefits of both. Like people just, I find that people generally push that low carb too much um, and the yeah. next is targeted sessions. So when introducing carbs, when taking them away. So if you have got that kind of 120 window, where are you going to put those in? When are you going to have them in your day? If you're going to have a high intensity session, put them in before that. If you're going to have a low intensity session, put them in after that. So there are those sorts of things that, um, that I think I really refined on the way that really worked for me. Yeah, I, I spoke about that with, with Grant on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, Grant Schofield, and he he agreed. Actually, it was um, one of the biggest take homes that a lot of people took out of that podcast. Was he agreed that protein is is really important? A lot of people in low carb have really been too hard on protein for the reasons you say, and um, he was saying they're going to change that when they re-release what the fat, yeah, um, the, you know, the book that he and Karen did because yeah. they talked quite a lot about gluconeogenesis. And I, I guess from my point of view, I've always, and I think this is based on the evidence, I, I've always had that idea that gluconeogenesis is demand-driven, not supply-driven. And so, you know, your body will, like you say, it will produce the amount of glucose that it requires. And obviously, if someone is more active, they're going to have a higher overall protein demand irrespective. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if there's not going to be as much gluconeogenesis anyway, or if there is, it's because it's demanded. So either way, it's not really a problem. Yeah. And also for the exercising person, like I'm, I'm pretty sure that the depletion of glycogen within the muscle and within the liver is going to, if your exercise is going to far outweigh 
any gluconeogenesis that's taking place anyway. So, yeah. and that's where, and that's really where people come and start because then you get into this kind of sarcopenia and this kind of muscle, muscle wastage area that's, then people lose power, they get weak and then they don't like it. And they say, oh, all my, all my high intensity is gone. I've got no strength. Like, well, yeah, of course. Like, so, um, so yeah, I think they're the, they're the main things that would, I would think I've learned along the way. And definitely, and I eat a lot of protein now, I'd say <laughs> big time on the protein, not, not this week, but, um, yeah, generally I'm very high on the protein. When you, uh, I don't fi just find you feel better, right? For a whole bunch of reasons, you know, improved yeah. cognition and, um, improved satiety and better autoregulation, all those types of things. I mean, that they all, they all result from that increased protein intake. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we, we see that a lot actually with people who have done extraordinarily well on low carb. And I'm thinking of a, a couple of specific cases that I've worked with, uh, you know, pre-diabetic or diabetic, morbidly obese, having lost huge amounts of weight and done incredibly well, normalizing blood lipids, all the good stuff happening, but getting to a point where as they start to become more active, as most people do when they change their health status, they begin feeling worse because they're drastically limiting their protein mm. and they're so scared of protein not they're not prepared to increase it until you have a sit down with them and explain all these things that you've explained so mm -hmm. eloquently yeah and then they feel so much better yeah yeah well yeah hardly not no surprise really is it but yeah <laughs> no. so, um, so yeah but i think it's just something that's unfortunately it's something that's been driven into the low carb community um and i'm not i mean I, it's just the same as people who are really sick and you know they need they need severe restriction then maybe it's a thing but someone who's just trying to change who's just trying to shit a bit of substrate utilization and increase fat metabolism then yeah you know if you're exercising you, you don't like i'm in the course i'm doing at the moment i'm just writing a course about um, low carb performance for long distance travel and i said you like don't even it's something you don't even have to consider don't even think about it just eat focus on the carbohydrates focus on those in grams and then don't really worry too much about the protein at all, at all, and just eat until you're satiated. And it's it's another thing that makes it everything more simple. Because if you look, if you're looking for longevity in this diet, you can't possibly be calculating all your proteins, be calculating all your carbohydrates all the time. So it just takes one thing off the table. Then you just go, all I'm going to worry about is my carbohydrates. I'm not going to worry about how much fat. I'm not going to worry about how much protein. I'm just going to worry about my carbohydrates in the day. And that's and then you're done. And then it's. It's a lot easier for people to get to grips with. Yeah. So in line with that, and I think you sort of suggested this before, there's some fluidity with the carb intake too, right? Because I yeah. know that a lot of, similar to protein, a lot of people who have been in the keto space or the low carb space have had these very arbitrary rules about, well, if you're keto, you're under 20 grams. And if you're low carb, you're under 50 grams. And if you're sort of moderate low carb, you're under 100 grams. Yeah. Which yeah. to me seems extraordinarily arbitrary because you might have a calorie requirement based on your energy output of mm. 2,000 calories versus 4,000 calories. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess that's where the, I think like, what I always suggest is that everyone should go from quite a low, a low carb phase, like about a three week phase where they really push that keto, that keto stage, which well, I, I say is less than 50 grams per day. But then after that, it's, that's the point where there's a little bit of a, what I think is like kind of finding your own personal sweet spot and you're mm. increasing that level to where you feel you perform best. Um, and that can be anywhere from, you know, 50 to 130 grams. Um, I've, I've not really seen many people who, 
benefit from going under over 130 grams. But if you're a real pro guy who's training like you know, 30 hours a week, then you might want to increase it a little bit more. But for most, 130 is um, it's kind of the upper level, I would say. So if you have someone and they're slowly increasing their carbohydrate intake to try and optimize their performance, how do you measure that? Or is it purely qualitative? Is it subjective stuff, how they're feeling, how they feel they're going on the bike? Yeah, I think it's mostly qualitative stuff. Um, obviously, like in this day and age, you can you can be quite, um, quite quant quantitative with, with some of the power numbers and the running numbers and the heart rates. So, I mean, if I was working with someone, I'd kind of, I just know just from some of the sessions that they do, how easily they'll be hitting those kind of key sessions where they're hitting some more high in power. It doesn't really manifest very much in the lower end stuff because people can still do that um, mm. on, in any kind of way, but it does manifest a little bit in the, um, in the higher end stuff. So, and also over time, like you just, you just adapt to the diet and, um, and you just seem to be get better and better and better, um, better and better and better at the higher intensity, regardless of pushing up the carbohydrate intake. Someone who held their carbohydrate intake at a certain amount would likely get better over the number of years anyway. I mean, I certainly found that for me, from 2012 to 2018, it was kind of the gift that kept on giving. And I just progressively seemed to my recovery got better or my high intensity got better and everything just got better and i didn't really change anything it was just the natural natural course of the diet itself so yeah and i think if you look, remember the volek faster study he kind of showed that himself that the people who were chronically in it they're really no different when they when they present at the start of the study in terms of muscle glycogen content and the rest they're really no different to your high carb athlete anyway so that would be that, that research is suggestive of that for sure yeah, I was going to bring that up, and I, I was really interested in your opinion on that longer-term adaptation, whether you think some of the improvements that people get at their high-end or high-intensity bouts, whether that is predominantly a function of that improved you know, glycogen um, storage and glycogen repletion, which basically matches people who are on high-carb diets, or whether there's a bit of a swing back where people begin to be able to be as efficient with their glucose utilization as someone who is on a higher carb diet or do you think it's a combination of both well i think it's a combination of both i definitely think it's a little bit of the kind of like gluconeogenesis, a bit of gluconeogenesis and it's not just from protein in this stage you know gluconeogenesis can be from anywhere so breaking down of a triglyceride molecule can produce some carbohydrates because it's a you know glycerol is binding it so which is kind of a carbohydrate um but also i think you know, what happens is that you do get the downregulation of certain enzymes. So it has been shown that you do get a downregulation of um, pyruvate dehydrogenase, so what's called PDH. But then yeah. people also look in the wrong place because you might have a downregulation in one area and you have an upregulation in another area. So, you know, there's probably the first thing is a downregulation, but with that downregulation, you might get an upregulation. And it just it's just that balancing of enzymes that's going to... Um, that's going to make that happen. Um, there was a great um, editorial done by um, Dr. Tommy Woods in the Journal of um, Strength and Conditioning, um, who said, he said, um, it was something like um, about ketosis, and he basically said, are we looking in the wrong place? And he gives a real nice summary as to why, why okay, yes, we do have a redu reduction in PDH, but on the other side, we've got um, upregulation of other enzymes that cause the high-intensity efforts not to be downregulated. I think, I think that's what's happening over time is we're just finding other ways to 
to do that that high intensity high intensity work. So is that sort of some mechanistic evidence that there is this grey area, and you know, a, as we're increasing the intensity of our exercise, we could potentially be tapping into a lot more glucose earlier, or if we're more fat adapted, we can sustain higher intensities only to a point, of course, but sustain higher intensities on fatty oxidation. Yeah, well, the thing is, we don't we don't know. Um, that is a that is a question that no one has answered, and the reason no one's answered is, is it almost possible without using some kind of radioactive isotope study. Um, you can't. Mm. You can So typically, in the lab, we'll we'll measure um, we'll measure fat and carbohydrate oxidation using the respiratory exchange ratio in the metabolic cart. So we look at ex expired VO two and expired VCO two. Um, but the problem with that is that because of the effect of the of acid and the buffering of acid, once we get to a higher intensity, it means VCO2 will go up by a large amount, which means it looks like the ratios go go way out. So we, we're actually looking like we're producing, you know, we're 150% carbohydrate and, you know, which, which doesn't add up. Um, so once we get past, pretty much past an RER of one, it's kind of off. Um, and R one is... 100% carbohydrate, 0.7 being 100% fat. So at those submaximal intensities, we have a good idea of what's going on. But once we get above that, above one, mm. it kind of, it kind of really goes off. So we don't know how much, um, how much energy is coming from fat, even at high intensities from fat adaptive athletes. Um, it's a real good study that could be done if we use kind of radioactive isotope models. But the problem is, is that it's super expensive and not easy to do. So, um, and also that it's, it becomes more complicated because we have internal carb, um, bicarbonate stores within the muscle that kind of change. Um, so it's, it's really, really hard to do, which is why no one's done it yet. So, yeah, that's the problem mm. we're in at the moment, unfortunately. So I guess what we have at the moment is, is really just based on functional outcomes testing. And I know that's, that's flawed because you're going to have a training stimulus typically between, you know, baseline and outcome, but what, what do you think? I mean, if you had to create a hypothesis, would you say that there is this variability in that middle section where you can be using more or less carbohydrate or do you think it's relatively fixed? I mean, what regard in, in terms of high intensity or? So basically having that crossover zone where at consistently, you know, slightly higher intensities, you can use more fat for fuel versus glucose. And there's a point at which you're basically only using glucose for fuel. Because some people think that there's basically just a cutoff and above that you, you, you're you stuck and that's genetically driven. But I, I certainly don't think that. Yeah. I mean, like I say, it's, in, it's impossible. It's impossible to know. But I, I do believe that even at the higher intensities, there is a high contribution of fat. And we showed that. So um, me and me and Prof. Paul Lawson, we actually we had a paper in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and we showed um, it was rethink it was thinking as the entitled rethinking fat as a fuel. And we showed that in the very highly trained individuals um, over a, it was it was looking at cross country skiers and they did they did a very high intensity interval training. And it showed that even at the really high intensities, they still had a high um, high contribution of fat as a fuel compared to a moderately, moderately trained person. Um, so, and this was like, I can't remember, I think it was a pro just above, um, it's just a long time since we wrote this paper, but it was just above VO2 max, um, mm. VO2 max intensity, and they were still having high contributions of um, carbohydrates at that point. And that was done using RER, so respiratory exchange ratio, which likely 
underestimates the amount of fat that is used as a fuel, not overestimates it. So interesting. So I would say that definitely, yeah, there's a crossover point, of course, where you go to more predominantly fat versus to more predominantly carbohydrate from fat, and that is intensity driven. But where that point is, is mm. higher than most people realize. It can be driven even higher with the correct diet. And, um, and yeah, we just don't know from the research that we want. And the likelihood is that the more fat adapted you are, the more highly trained you are, the higher that point is. So, um, and am I correct in also thinking that it's location specific or tissue specific? Because if you're, let's say your, your legs are really going for it, but you're a long distance runner, you're powering up a hill, there's not all as much, you know, upper body movement as compared to say a hundred meter sprinter. Is that correct that the different muscles working at different intensities would have different substrate usage? Oh, well, I think, it, I mean, if you think about where, substrate use comes from and where that beta oxidation comes from it's all derived from mitochondria right so the amount of mitochondria in the muscle so if we look at people if we look at the correlations between fat oxidation and vo2 max for example it's a very strong like 0.8 to 0.9 correlation because regardless the fitter you are the better your fat oxidation which is because the fitter you are the more mitochondria you have so the mitochondria being the powerhouse of the muscle cell um so yeah like if you're using bigger muscle groups, you're going to have more mitochondria turn, greater mitochondria turnover, um, and therefore there'll be more fat oxidation going on. Um, so like, you know, we generally see that running has a higher fat, has a, people running have higher fat maxes than people cycling, for example. So. Ah, of course, yeah. So maybe, you know, there's something going on there because you're using your arms, you're not stationary, you're supporting your body weight, there's more um, postural things going on, there's more core stability going on, which is why we, we likely see a higher fat oxidation um, in runners and cyclists. So like many triathletes that I test, you'll test them on the bike, test them on the run, and um, their running fat oxidation can be, you know, 0.2 or 0.1 higher than what you see on, on, the, on the bike. So... Um, but just to kind of, we, well, you, you mentioned it briefly before, is you mentioned, um, you know, we have the training studies. So two, two training studies that I've been involved in, one's been published and one's about to be published in, well, it's currently under review in the Frontiers in Physiology Journal. So the first one was a, a shorter... Um, Expensive journal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, I didn't pay for it. <laughs> um, so... So the um, so the first one was in, it was an eight week study that looked at basically it took a group and put them on a low carb diet and they went underwent some high intensity interval training and the high intensity interval training was set I think six by three minutes at one hundred and ten percent of VO two max and it was a set so that's kind of like the gold standard of that kind of interval and it was basically we looked at can if so we put someone this is this is a typical high intensity interval training session if we put someone through a low carb diet can they still do that type of session same power same everything else and they still could totally fine mm. the only thing that happened was that the fat contribution during the high intensity intervals went up surprise right but they still did 110 percent of their vo2 max value which is pretty high um, and the more recent study that was that, that was currently under review in frontiers um was a 12-week ketogenic diet. It's probably one of the longest studies that I know of that's been in a ketogenic, well, I say ketogenic, more low-carb diet. Um, and what and what we did there is we did graded exercise tests, and we also did 30-15 tests. And for those who don't know what the 30-15 test is, it's pretty much like a shuttle 
test that's done a lot in team sports, a bit like the beat test or the yo-yo test. So it's a kind of a marker of aerobic fitness. So um, what we found is, and we also measured high variability all the way through as well, which we can talk all right. about, we can talk about in a bit. And what we found was after week two, heart rate variability was down. Um, graded exercise test was worse. Step test was worse. But then progressively throughout the study, the low carb group got better and better and better and better. And eventually they were higher than the, by week 12, they were above the, in the 3015 test and the graded exercise test, they were, they were higher. And on an individual basis, we also saw that more people, nearly every person responded positively to the low carb diet through this training intervention. And in the high carb diet, some, some were positive and some were negative. So um, that's quite a cool new study. And hopefully be, that hopefully published. I think it's um, one of the longest 12 week low carb studies that's out there. Yeah, that's super interesting. So what sort of carbon take were they on? Um, it was, yeah, they were pretty low, less than it was 50 grams a day. Um, oh, wow. Yes, yeah. that is low. Yeah. And, um, and what was interesting is that ketones went up pretty high at the start and then came down, which is what yeah. I see all the time. <laughs> like, and I think that's a major frustration that people start the ketogenic diet and their ketones are quite high and then gradually they just come back down to like normal levels almost. Um, but yeah, but they were still in that kind of low, low carb, low carb less than 50 grams so i remember speaking with steve finney about that because i had noticed that clinically over many years was there was the sort of increase and then a bit of a drop plateau and then sometimes people got a bump many mm. months later again and um i don't know what your thoughts are on that but i, I my sim simplistic sort of understanding or my simplistic hypothesis i guess not understanding but my simplistic hypothesis was that people just become a, a bit more efficient at utilizing ketones yeah exactly that's a, and i think i mean uh, that's 100 percent the reason because what we're measuring in ketones with beta hydroxybutyrate when we measure it in the blood we're only we're just measuring its appearance right rate of appearance we're not measuring its usage so the reason that it's so high when people first start out on the diet is because your body's like what the hell are these ketones i don't know what to do with these things but gradually you know you become better and better at using them and, um, and then their appearance is less. It doesn't mean that their production is any lower. In fact, their production could be higher. We just don't know. It's just that it's, and it's exactly the same is when we measure lactate. So in the lab, we might measure lactate in the blood during an incremental exercise test. We're only measuring its rate of appearance. So the really fit individuals, they might producing as, be producing as much lactate, but their rate of appearance is less because they've got so much aerobic muscle that they're just soaking up that lactate, converting it back um, to um, pyruvate and then running it back through aerobic metabolism, using it again. So it's, a, it's exactly the same principle. So with respect to ketone levels, do you think that there are any tipping points or do you think that there's any benefit in being higher versus just basically being wherever you are, you know, based on eating a good diet and making sure you're well fueled? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, I think it's very individual. As a hundred percent sit on the fence answer, <laughs> um, but I, I think um, I don't really think there are any optimal levels. Even like, you know, like the Volek and Finney, their guidelines like to be in ketosis, you're above 0.5. I don't know whether that's even necessarily true. I mean, I measure my ketones quite a lot. Um, like today, I'm sitting. I was sat this morning after a bike ride at 0.8. You know, and I'll seldom see anything over one. 
Um, as far as I know, and I, I again, I spoke with Stephanie about this. As far as I know, he said that they they didn't base that on any evidence. Yeah, that well, that would make sense because <laughs> because like at the moment, I, as I mentioned before we started, I'm doing this um, fasting mimicking diet, so my calories are low <clears throat> and everything's really really low. So obviously, I'm I am in some ketosis, but I think like it's more it's more of an interest to know can you produce them when you need to. That's what you really need to know. So if you're doing a long bike ride and you're coming in and you're dizzy, you're bonked, you're all over the place, watch your blood glucose, watch your ketones, because I can guarantee you that you're likely the person who has just got a blood glucose down the low threes and a, and a ketone down at 0.2 or 0.1, right? And that's when you're in trouble. Because you've got to think about it as what I like to think about is overall substrate. So if your blood glucose is down at 3.8, but you've got a 0.8 ketone, you're absolutely living life. But if you're that person who's got a 3.7 or 3.8 blood glucose and a 0.1 ketone, you're in trouble. And that's when, and that's what I'd be interested in because you're obviously not, you know, you're not going to beat station. You're not using fatty acids as a fuel and you're not breaking down ketones for the brain. So something's missing in your metabolic machinery at that point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I um, I think when people are chasing ketones, it can be a little bit limiting. It can also be limiting on the wallet, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because <laughs> those, those, those strips are not, are not cheap. Well, and neither are ketone supplements, as no, you all know. So no, no. I, I, I often ask people when they're chasing higher and higher levels they're they're looking for threes fours five sixes you know absolutely crazy i would never see i would never see a number like that even after even after i did like a long long ride i would i might be in might be 1.1 1.2 but like i would i would if i'm in my normal diet um i would never ever be in ketosis in the morning never ever maybe after i've done a bit of exercise but um then I might then I would be in ketosis if I went you know just had a kind of a fat black coffee and did a, a bike and a run or something I'd then be in ketosis but yeah. not um, not in the morning. No. I, I would find if I was eating a lot of carbohydrate, let's say up to sort of even up to two hundred grams, but I was carb backloading that and then doing a little bit of intermittent fasting, eating practically no carbs apart from obviously vegetables and things the rest of the day. I'd find that I would begin hitting. 0.6.7 around lunchtime. Right. Okay. And but that's basically it. Yeah. Um. It, but even if I'm not eating any carbohydrate whatsoever, I would seldom. I mean, seldom get over about 1.4. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Well, there. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, I mean, so for this for this week, for example, the highest I've read is 0.8. Um. You know, and um, and so to give it a bit of perspective, on Monday I had one. Th- so 15 grams of less than 50 grams of carbs a day, eight, um, 15 grams of protein a day, and the rest is fat. Right? And so wow. that day one, I was 1,100 calories. Day yesterday, I was 750 calories. Um, today, I will be 800 calories, um, and then tomorrow, and I've got two more days to go. But, um, but on top of that, I cycled 600 calories on Monday. I ran 400 calories on Tuesday. And I bite one thousand two hundred calories today. So you you imagine my my calorie deficit, right? You know, as I sit, sit here right now. But like, I'm pretty. At least I hope I'm talking okay. <laughs> right. I'm not looking too fuzzy. Um, 
so yeah i mean but that's it's amazing what uh but what you can do but it's also amazing that marquita still haven't gone that high you would expect that they would be a lot higher than that but i think it's because i'm so fat adapted i've been doing it for so long that i'm just like eating you're them. using them right yeah yeah that's one thing that again i, I spoke with um stephanie about a couple of years back was that little bump yeah. that we sometimes see and what what often was associated with that was you know most people as you've seen as well when they start a keto diet if they're fasting like after fasting so in the morning or um during or after exercise their ketone levels are higher but what i've often seen is when people have been on a keto diet for a long time their ketone levels in the morning are lower and their ketone levels after exercise are, are lower than habitual now, it might be slightly higher than the, the person who's just getting into ketosis, but I would say that's just purely from, from using them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think, um, you know, and I, find, I mean, I talk to, I mean, I see in the data all the time where people first start, they report crazy high numbers and just gradually it goes down over time. And that was exactly what we saw in our 12-week, the 12-week research that we did, so... Um, I also think people get more sensible and they start eating more vegetables and more protein as well. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like Which helps. Maintainable. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so you mentioned HRV a little while back mm -hmm. and we didn't get on to talking about that last time. Now I've become more interested in HRV the last year or so. And I've been listening to a few podcasts and things, and it seems like a lot of people mischaracterize what HRV even is. You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day and he was saying, well, you wake up and you take your heart rate and if it's higher, it means this. And if it's lower, it means that. But that's completely not what it is, right? Um, well, if you get a mixture between heart rate and heart rate variability, then yeah, there, exactly. there's a, there's a, there is a bit of a difference. So heart rate is basically how many times your heart rate, your heart beats in a minute, whereas heart rate variability is looking at the variation in the gap between heartbeats over a time, over a time section. Um, which could yeah. be, could be five minutes, could be a minute, could be whatever you, whatever you want it to be. Um, so, so why we're interested in that is that um, so the that variation. So even if we're sat here now, say we're sat here on a heart rate sixty, it doesn't mean that that gap between each beat is one second. It's varying all the time. And the reason we're interested in that is because it's linked to the autonomic nervous system. So two sides of the autonomic nervous system. One side being the sympathetic side, so kind of your stress, your stress or fight or flight side. So if you're stressed at work, you're exercising, or you get a fright, that you are, you will have activation of the sympathetic side. Conversely, on the other side, you've got the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system, which is more your rest and digest. So you, you and me sat here now, pretty chilled out, we're quite relaxed. We'll be predominantly parasympathetic. Um, so. And the and and these two they kind of work in conjunction with one another. Like if if you're you'll have a parasympathetic withdrawal before you have a sympathetic activation. So to increase heart rate, for example, um, heart rate will first increase by parasympathetic withdrawal. So parasympathetic activity slows down yeah. the heart, and then which so if you withdraw it, heart rate will increase. And then once you get to a certain point, sympathetic activation increases the heart rate. Um, to make it to make it go to higher really high levels um and what's associated with that is so more variation in heart rate variability so the more variation between beats is more parasympathetic and less variation between beats is more sympathetic and so what can um how does that apply to athletes like how, how can they use hiv or what what 
functional benefit does it have to be measuring that for an athlete? So there's, like, you can measure it now. So, I mean, I mean, when I first started doing my PhD in this area, it was it was a bit of a pain in the backside. You you had to do it for five minutes. You had to put on a strap in the morning, your heart rate polar strap, and measure it um, for five minutes. But now we're at this position where we can just measure it through an iPhone. You can use the like an app called HRV for training, where you can use the finger on the back of the camera, really easy, taken in one minute, super simple. Um, but what where it's really good is because if you think about the sympathetic side being more stress, the parasympathetic side being more recovery and and um, rest and digest, you can kind of get a good proxy measure of how you're coping with a given training load, whether you're adapting positively or you're adapting negatively. So what we usually see is that someone's adapting positively to a given training load, HRV will increase. Um, and then if they're adapting negatively to a training load, that HRV will gradually decrease over time. So um, that's, that's how most people use it in, in, a, in an athlete setting. Um, yeah, so yeah. And, and that app you mentioned has, that's been validated, right? There's been some, some research on that. Did you do that research? Yeah, I did that research. Yeah, so I was um, in a published in International Journal of Sports, Physiology and Performance. Um, so I, yeah, I was the lead author on that and we compared um, HRV for training to ECG. So ECG is pretty much the gold standard of of HRV, um, and we also put the polar heart rate monitor on there in there as well, and it was a very close relationship to, um, yeah, pretty much 0.98. So yeah, you don't get much much closer than that. So yeah, to what the ECG is. I think where most people get unstuck with HRV is that you could sit here now and you could take it one minute and take it a minute later, and it would be different. Um, mm. But this is the thing: it's our internal physiology and our autonomic nervous system is constantly changing. Um, so it's all about um, understanding what is a, is a big change and it's understanding kind of that signal to noise ratio. So, um, yeah, HRV, from, it, it can be noisy in terms of physiology. It's not noisy in terms of, of the technical area of measurement, but it can be noisy in terms of the physiology of being forever changing. But on the other side, the signal is also quite large. So we can see mm. changes and it's more responsive to changes in stress, more responsive to changes in training load than um, something like resting heart rate, for example, which is likely less noise, but lower signal. So um, so that's kind of where HRV has real benefits because it's very sensitive to change. So the, the simplified metrics that they use, for example, in, a, in HRV for training, it gives you your recovery points. Does that, um, and it, you know, it's got a range, so it sort of gives you indications. Is, is that a pretty good measure there, or do you think you need to dive deeper into it? So, so the range that is given in HIV for training, for example, that range is your own, your own range. It's, um, it's based on your baseline value, so it won't give you that until you've done a number of days of the training. Um, yeah. And it's pretty much it's based on your average value and your day-to-day -day variation. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's basically the CV of your normal value. So if you... If you're a person who naturally varies a lot in the day, um, from, from day to day, you will have a much wider band before you'll get a flag. Whereas if you're someone who doesn't actually vary that much, your band will be narrow, narrower because you know less, smaller change is more meaningful. Um, the HIV for training app, though, that's given on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not really a fan of looking at HIV acutely. I look at it more chronically, mm -hmm. so I'll look at rolling averages. So HRV for training also have a, um, it's called the HRV Pro app, and it's actually on the desktop. And that can, 
and I use that with my athletes. I have all of them stacked in a line and I can see them all in one go. And that uses kind of rolling, more rolling averages, which I find more useful um, than the day-to-day -day stuff. So I don't really, I don't really look at the day-to-day. -day. And well, there's been some debate around the utility <clears throat> of HRV for non-endurance athletes. So your strength and power athletes, what, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just not really something that's researched. And uh, there's a guy called Andrew Flat from the University of um, Alabama, and he's and he's done a lot in this in the area of more strength. I think there is some take homes because people don't under realize that it's it's not just a marker of training; it's a marker of life. It's a marker of overall stress. So you know, it can pick up other things as well. Um, but any degree of muscular acidosis, so any kind of um, so say you're doing like, if you're doing like reps in the gym that are like low reps, high strength, probably not so much, but if you're doing something more like your CrossFit, for example, definitely would pick something like that up. So if you're doing high reps, um, you know, high reps where you're producing, you know, it's kind of more anaerobic, you, you know, that would show in your HRV for sure. I've found, and this, this might just be coincidental i'm not sure but i've found it's it's quite interesting that because i've been taking it for quite a while now when it indicates that um you know i'm a, I'm a bit more fatigued or whatever it happens to be that would be um obviously hrv being lower right yeah yeah um sometimes i feel pretty good and there's been a number of occasions where i felt pretty good and i thought oh well it, it it's obviously just an aberration but I've got into the gym and really haven't performed as well. Conversely, there's been times when HIV has been, been higher and it looks like it's all sort of trending up, but I feel kind of a, a bit shit, maybe just a slight, you know, few hours less sleep, or maybe you had a beer the night before or whatever, but I get into the gym and once I click into it, I, yeah. I basically kill it. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any rationale for that or do you think that that's just an experiential thing and it's just coincidence well, i mean it, i mean what you just reported it does make it does make sense i mean we the one thing we know is we're not always that in tune with how we really how we really going you know and the yeah. um, and the hrv being higher uh we do see that a lot like so lots of the training studies what we find is that when hrv is high often you don't actually feel good but you can still execute sessions so the sign of someone coping well with a high training load is HRV is going up. So people are getting higher and higher in the HRV. Um, they feel tired. They feel like they're not, you know, they generally report badly, but once they get into the training session, they are pretty good. Um, they're not, but they're not, they're just basically holding the, the same levels as they would always do. But then once the cha yeah. they're tapering, it comes off a bit, HRV will go, then go back down to kind of more of a baseline level. And then the performance will have an increase. So, um, so yeah, it's not uncommon to re to have that kind of mixed high HRV feeling bad, but still going okay. That's that's been done quite. It's been reported quite a lot. I reported it in general sports medicine with the with some rowers. Um, Jan Lemoore reported it in some triathletes, and um, another author, Clint Bellinger, he reported it as well in some other triathletes. And we've all kind of shown that same thing. So, yeah. And have you got any? research going on at the moment in HIV? No, I'm not actually. I'm kind of, um, yeah, nothing nothing in the world of HIV. I probably should, but uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. But it's certainly, 
it's certainly something that you use with your athletes and, and oh, yeah that. i mean i'm still well into the hiv i've just i'm just not doing any active research at the moment in the area um i guess i am collaborating with a group in spain um who are doing we're doing some stuff in the heart rate variability so we just had one they had one study published that was um daily um, training prescription based on heart variability. So this one study that's now um, under review was block periodization, general block periodization versus HRV um, guided training. So they've been pretty encouraging. Generally people respond more positively when training is guided by heart variability in the morning. So you kind of wait and mm. get that reading. And then if it's a high reading, you do high intensity training. If it's a low reading, you do low intensity training. Um, that was kind of where HRV first started. Um, where the interest because people think prescribe training based on that so um so yeah and that's been quite encouraging and then we're we're kind of looking at another area now where we're um where we're trying to find um relationships between females a female cyclist and hrv over different power outputs so yeah a few things in that area interesting yeah i was um talking with eric helms do you know eric uh not well <laughs> i obviously know know of him because of his is um massive social media following <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. well he uh, i was going to talk to him about whether he thought there was any application for hrv in a podcast we did a couple of weeks back um of in, in strength and power this is and uh, i didn't get around to asking him it because he had already done a little article in his mass research review about hrv for say bodybuilding strength and power didn't really have any strong conclusions there but um certainly thought that it was an interesting area of research and obviously with his um phd having been in auto regulation of training using yeah. you know perceived exertion scales and things yeah. there could be quite a nice little marriage there so i'm certainly watching this space because i think it's fascinating and I'm, I'm using it with my athletes um right. a, a fair bit now yeah it's interesting yeah i mean maybe maybe i should maybe i'll have a chat with him i'll flick him a note and see if he, if he can think of anything i mean i i'd love to get i mean I'd love to get do a little bit in bodybuilding and strength um, and the HRV space because I think it's a yeah, something that's not really understood and, and, and I think and I've, I've kind of done the endurance thing and I, and I like and I don't know about you I'm I'm looking for I don't know how you sometimes I'm, I'm doing this course at the moment with low carb low carb diet and I'm kind of looking to looking forward to kind of moving on from that and doing something else because <laughs> it's just it's just such a um, contentious area and I'm like, God, it gets tiring, you know? So Yeah, and it's, it's hard to be pragmatic in that space. I think you're one of the more pragmatic people out there because you recognize the utility of carbohydrate and the spectrum of carb intake, you know, but there's so many people out there who are so dogmatic either way. It's very yeah. difficult to define a middle ground. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny because I was I had a <clears throat> chat with someone the other day, like, you know, my background is not i'm not a nutritionist i'm a physiologist and my main background is training and you know all the stuff we talked about and the lactates and training intensities and all that it's not really nutrition but i've just kind of got into this area from my own personal bit of research and my own personal journey right so um um yeah it's funny because in 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 the course that we're producing and um, we've got one section that's in the female athlete um and most of the courses Bit, a bit practical um, as well sorry it's a little bit academic but mostly it's my own practical application of how I have done it personally so it's um, apart from the female um, the female module which is 
really quite purely research and academic because I've no experience in that area. So, <laughs> yeah. so. so with the course you're, you're running, is this geared more towards the, the athlete or the coach or both? Um, it's geared towards both. Um, yeah, and geared towards long distance triathletes. Um, but so the idea is that you could, you as a, you as a coach or an athlete, you could take on the information and do it yourself. And also you could take on the information and guide someone else into doing it as well. So, um, it's got, it's got, it's got both really. It's got like troubleshooting up things and all that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been, I mean, like we've been astounded at how popular it is as well like we sold out the first so we did a soft launch of like up to, for just 40 people um, a couple of weeks ago and it sold out in three minutes wow yeah so um so pretty good not bad I'm, i might have to get out of the education game and just leave it to you mate <laughs> yeah well i'll stick to the long distance triathlon so yeah yeah <laughs> well that's i mean that's it, that's great right with the um the, the growth of this area and the segmentation that's one thing that really excites me is you've got people like yourself and you're working with, you know, endurance athletes and, and probably a bit of crossover there as well and, and really getting some good information out. Obviously, my client base would be completely different to yours, but it means that there's there's really good information going out that is is very tailored to what people need mm. rather than before. I think a lot of it was very generic, yeah. homogenized stuff, and it didn't really work particularly well because it wasn't specific. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's... The devil is in the detail in this sort of thing completely. And the, you know, to have the detail, you have to have the context. Um, and, and without, without those two things together, you're just, you may as well not even bother trying. So, um, yeah, that's the way. And I, th I think it's really important to have done it. I mean, I think that's why, you know, you're, you're such a powerful educator because you've you've researched it you've studied it but you've lived it as well mm. and not just in a lifestyle setting but from lifestyle through to performance and yeah. and that's fairly unrivaled i don't think there's many people who, who can really claim that yeah i mean to the best of my knowledge i'm not aware of anyone else <laughs> so i mean yeah i guess that's kind of where um, that's the that's still the position that i'm I'm taking on on the, all of Endure IQ really, and um, I mean, what we're trying to build is we we really want to build a community of long distance triathletes who just want to learn from each other and kind of get all that inf and not have to trawl the internet for false information all the time and have just a resource that's tested and true and and people can feel free to communicate in a in a friendly manner with one another about all kinds of kinds of different things and and the first one will be low carb and then we'll look to do some more on training on training and hydration and sodium and whatever that might be awesome and one thing i meant to ask you earlier on was what what's um what sort of role does strength training plan in your own preparation for events well this it's an interesting, it's a good question because I've probably done more strength training since finishing Kona than I have done in my whole life. Um, so to be honest with you, not a lot, really. I've never been big on the strength, but I have been big on the strength within sessions. Um, so like I'll do a lot of paddle work in the gym, do a lot of hill work running, hill work on the bike. So, and I've always been pretty good at that. Uh, and I always thought I was reasonably strong so i was always a good hill climb on the bike i was always good at running up hills i did um in the build up to kona i would do some 
more core and core mobility and postural work, um, but it certainly wasn't strength work related. Um, so yeah, not a lot, but since, um, since finishing Kona, I've been getting into it a little bit more. And mainly the reason is that um, because I, I work, I've just worked now as a um, head of performance for Emirates Team New Zealand. So the, oh, right. yeah, so that's what I'm doing as well at the moment. So, and working with the grinders, you know, seeing them in the gym, I'm like, took this realization of just exactly how weak I actually am, <laughs> you know, compared to, compared to guys like that. And it kind of, it's kind of scared me a little bit, like, you know, cause I'm 36 now. And the only thing that's going to happen from now is I'm just going to get weaker unless I do something about it. So, um, so yeah, I've been making more of a conscious effort to get into the gym and um, I've got this aim of, I mean, literally, I could literally do two chin-ups, and that'd be me. So I'm trying to get to a, a point where I'm a bit, a bit stronger and a bit more, a bit more able. And I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying it. But I just, my body does not like adapting to that kind of thing. It's like a very slow process. Like you give me some endurance training, and I'll soak it up immediately. But the, um, the strength stuff is just like so slow. And I find it like, and I just don't get the same buzz that I do from endurance training. Like. So. <laughs> I do a session the personality thing, eh? Yeah, I do a session in the gym, and I'm like, what was the point in that? <laughs> but you know, see, I'm I'm exactly the same about going out and, and running. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, Why would I do that? I'd rather go and, go in the gym and, and pick up something really freaking heavy. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, pick it up once, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so what I tend to do is I'll, I'll for my gym, I'll run seven or eight k first. And then I'll go in the gym for 30, 30, 30 minutes or so and do um, I do like a full body I do like a full body circuit. So and my colleague at Emirates Team New Zealand, a guy called Adam Story, um, who's I know Adam well. We used to live together. Oh, well, there you go. So yeah. yeah, so Adam puts me through the ropes. He he shows me a few tricks to um, to get me going. So that's pretty good. Yeah. I'll have to get Adam on actually because he's you know when well, I think when we were training together, we we're both training at North Sport uh, for weightlifting. Yeah. Okay. And. I think he was still doing his undergrad at the time. Yeah, well, he's, he's obviously he's gone on to do great things. He's, I mean, Adam was like super smart guy, very smart guy, one of the smartest guys I know for sure. Especially like in that kind of in just the ad, ad, adaptation and the gene expression and all that kind of space. So I would yeah. definitely recommend you get him uh, on your show. And also, he's finally seen the light and he's gone into doing, doing a bit of like long distance running now. So he's you know. <laughs> He's on my team now. <laughs> yeah. I think from memory, he was always pretty, pretty put, well put together, pretty fit. But I yeah, well, I don't know. If you've seen him I mean, I don't know if you've seen him recently, but he's uh, he's not the power lifter. He's still he's still got a bit of muscle on him, but he's certainly not the power lifter that he used to be. Like he's he's um, he's lost a lot of weight. He's like seventy five kilograms now. I think he was maybe fifteen kgs heavier than that. So, but, um, but he's still strong, right? He can still do, uh, which is which is cool. So yeah, so my aim is to get a little bit stronger. I always, I had this aim. I said, I was saying to my wife that I want to do every year. I want to do for 2020, the start of the new year, I want to do 20 chins in the 20K run. 2021, 21 chins in the 21K run. 2022, 22 chins in the 22. Wow. That, I mean, that's a good goal because that's, people think about that as not being that extraordinary, but doing over 20 chin-ups is, is yeah. freaking Well, put it this way, the run doesn't scare me. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but twenty-two chins. Would, I'm the exact opposite. That run would scare. Yeah, twenty-two chins is a long way to go from what I can do at the moment. So, um, 
so yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of the um, my mini little goal but i think that would be quite cool to be able to do that because uh, to me like the chin-ups are a good good indicator of just general strength so yeah so any sort of parting advice you'd give to an endurance athlete who's wanting to start uh, experimenting with fat adaptation or, or lower carb nutrition oh well my, i guess my first anxiety my first advice would be to sign up and do our course <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and to, to, to tell us the um how to spell that enduro iq as well just so people get it right in endurance so e-n-d-u-r-e iq.com perfect we'll put that in the show notes as well obviously yeah and we've got it we've got a few blogs up there um and you can kind of we kind of they kind of teach you the why is trying to convince people why it's why it is a thing we model a few races um i think so i think that would be the main and i think don't um don't don't listen to what you read on the internet and don't follow don't follow these general guidelines that are not tailored for long distance triathlon because like as i say the devil is in the detail and the de devil is in the detail is all around the context of what you're trying to do so if you're if you're just a office worker completely different to a triathlete and if you're an office worker who's not very well completely different to an office worker who's really healthy so um i think um yeah do the research into what it means to be a low carb athlete for your particular sport and um again different differing differing people by different sports will have different requirements so um i think and that's where people get upset about things when you talk about low carb nutrition it's almost like it's a religion sometimes the way people get upset about it um but i think it's um people disagree because um everything's about context and um no one no one no one can talk freely uh, unless you're talking within a specific context so yeah exactly and I, I think you know with the growth of low carb there's a lot of people who have been in it for some time and are seen as being you know almost gurus in the space but their their time on feet in the industry is actually pretty slim you know mm -hmm. there's uh, i was reading a bio of i won't say who but a um a fairly well-known keto coach and he's sort of saying that he helped introduce this whole thing to the mainstream and whatnot and he started doing this back in 2005 you know that that's oh sorry no sorry about 2015 right so four or five years ago get into this area and while that's a fairly long time to be focusing on a specific thing um you and i will both know that i guess in our times in practice you develop pragmatism over a long time. Mm. You know, I, I tried my first ketogenic diet when I was a high school athlete back in 1996. Yeah, wow, that's ages. And then pro provide, you know, gave my first ketogenic nutrition plan to a client in 1998. Yeah. Um, so a long time ago. And you can only become more pragmatic with time, I think. You lose that new, new um, convert zealotry. Yeah, yeah, for sure sure yeah and so i think what what you said before um about getting advice you know so if people want to get into endurance nutrition they want to look at fat adaptation lower carb whatever and going to your site and getting some some coaching on there i think the value of that cannot be overstated uh you know a lot of my work at the moment is is troubleshooting for people who have developed all this confusion from yeah, yeah, yeah. searching Dr. Google. Yeah, for sure. And, and that, it's great for me as a, as a business, but I'd rather not be having to deal with all of that. And this is the problem, right? And I think like, you know, 
my our course is like 299 usd so it's not it's not even expensive right it's um and for you know very well priced yeah it's a cost of a um it's a cost of a pair of trainers and and it's not and there is not we're not trying to we're just trying to make a difference really and educate people in the right way it's not we're not looking to make millions and millions you know but i think um you know if you look at that you can in terms of the time saving that you can have in your time researching it and also on the race course itself it's quite huge so um absolutely well yeah well dan plues it's always fascinating talking with you no, I'm going I'm to have to get you back on again because there's always things that we don't get around to discussing. But yeah, just doing absolutely great work. And I'd encourage everyone to go to Endure IQ. Um, we'll obviously have the um, information and the links up on our show notes. So check those out. Uh, but yeah, thanks, Dan. Thanks for being on yet again. Till next time. Thanks, Cliff. Thank you. Indeed. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. That was the Carb Appropriate Podcast with me, Cliff Harvey. If you'd like to watch the live recording of the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Cliff Harvey. Find out about me and what I do at cliffharvey.com and make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all popular podcast channels and to our YouTube channel at holisticperformance.tv.